you've probably heard about Israeli settlements. These are the Jewish towns, villages, and neighborhoods built primarily in the West Bank on what is supposed to be land for the Palestinians. The common narrative is that these settlements are what fuel the Israeli-Palestinian conflict by necessitating the occupation's draconian hold on Palestinian life, from checkpoints and permits to land theft and home demolitions. These settlements are populated by extreme nationalists who use these settlements to cut off Palestinians from one another, carving up the West Bank into so many Jewish enclaves that it makes a future Palestinian state impossible. If not for these settlements, so the narrative goes, there would be no Palestinian violence, no need for occupation, no need for conflict. There is some truth to these ideas, but there's also a lot of misconceptions, and we could take the narrative in another direction. The settlements add fuel to the fire, enraging Palestinians, and offer a ready excuse for violence and terrorism. But every Palestinian extremist group will tell you that this conflict is not about settlements. If they disappeared tomorrow, there would still be the entire state of Israel to destroy. And yes, these days settlements are primarily associated with the right-wing endeavor that sees the Jewish ties to the land as an historic and moral right, and thus with a consequent goal of preventing a Palestinian state from emerging. But it's also the case that the West Bank is the historic homeland of the Jewish people, and the site of Judaism's holiest places, which in previous eras had been denied to them. Why shouldn't Jews be allowed to live there? The Arabs attacked Israel in 1967, lost the war, and this is the consequence. Jordan itself had illegally occupied the West Bank in 1948, ethnically cleansing the Jews who had lived there for centuries. It's also the case that these days there are not Israeli settlements in every part of the West Bank, and that aside from a few small outposts, no major new settlements have been established in the last perhaps 25 or 30 years, depending on how you want to count such things. So there's a huge history there, as always with competing narratives. But what we're looking at today is how these settlements got started in the occupied territories after the 1967 Six-Day War. To get from then to now is not a straight line, so we're going to limit ourselves and start from the beginning. I'll bet it's not what you think, an imperialist colonialist land grab intent on subjugating the Palestinians. Some of these early settlements were indeed right-wing national endeavors, but others, including the very first, were left-wing socialist projects. Different settlements in different places started by different people with different motives. There's no single narrative here that is going to wrap everything up in a neat storyline. So today, the very first Israeli settlement, a tiny farming kibbutz of a few dozen people just off the border with Syria, called Merom Golan. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Let's go back a little ways for a minute to set the scene here. When you look back at the Zionist movement that began in the late 1880s, we see primarily a secular, socialist movement that emphasized the settlement of land as key to the development of the Jewish homeland in Palestine. A foundational principle of Zionism was the notion that by working the land with the weak, persecuted Jew of Europe find redemption as a strong, suntanned, muscular new Jew made powerful by the values of hard work, collective living, and self-defense 
all infused with socialist and Jewish values. All of this was exemplified by the kibbutz, the small collective farming villages where people lived communally. And by the way, you can dig into this more all the way back in season two on the history of Zionism. Check out episodes 26 and 32. But there was another element to this as well, in the pre-state years, before Israel was established in 1948. At a time of conflict with the Arabs, when the British rulers of Palestine were looking to divide up the territory into separate Jewish and Arab homelands, these settlements were what we call facts on the ground. When the Jews drained a swamp, farmed the land, built some houses, and added a watchtower, they established that this was Jewish land. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gorenberg writes that, especially after the bloody Arab revolt of 1936, quote, The strategy was now to place settlements in new areas of Palestine, to prevent division of the land, or at least to make sure that as much as possible ended up in the Jewish share. End quote. And not only that, but these settlements also now doubled as a kind of frontier between Jews and Arabs, and therefore took on a defensive function as well. That's why you find some of the early organized Jewish defense groups, like the Palmach, emerging from the kibbutz movement. When Israel was established in 1948 and firmer boundaries were put in place, you saw another big push to build settlements, to round out the new areas for agricultural development and security. This is why so many kibbutzim were snuggled right up on the borders with the Arab states. So settlements served a dual purpose. They fulfilled the Zionist imperative to develop the Jewish homeland for productive use, and they fulfilled the Zionist imperative, or just the human imperative, for self-defense in a time of intense conflict. In other words, you have a socialist purpose for settlement, and a national one. This didn't happen exactly by design, but organically over time, and was highly organized. One of the early leaders of the kibbutz movement was Yitzhak Tabankin, one of the most important figures in Israeli history whom you've never heard of. Tabankin was a fascinating figure, born in 1887 in Belarus and died in 1971. Gershom Gorenberg describes him as, quote, father figure, teacher, ideologue, secular equivalent of a Hasidic master, end quote. He was a kind of ultimate socialist who brought his utopian ideals to the Zionist project in Palestine. He and his movement advocated for what became known as the whole land of Israel. It's a position of territorial maximalism, that the Jewish people would have the entirety of their historic homeland to settle, which for Tabankin meant Jews living in socialist communities where they could fulfill their national sovereign destiny free of anyone else's control. He had no patience for European colonial powers meddling and drawing boundary lines in Palestine. He fought tooth and nail at Jewish politicians, like David Ben-Gurion and Vladimir Jabotinsky, who were working towards territorial compromises to get a Jewish state. He wasn't interested in religion, and he wasn't interested in statehood. His was an idealized Jewish socialist utopia. By the time we get to 1967, Yitzhak Tabankin's grand socialist whole land of Israel vision wasn't quite working out so well. On the one hand, the kibbutz movement was a huge success. It was at the peak of its strength and had developed huge areas of the country since 1948, and it had become kind of a totem for the nation as a whole as the source of its elite warriors and leaders. 
But the Israel established in 1948 had only half or so of the original historical Jewish homeland, and there was no effort to get any more. When Israel had captured the Sinai Peninsula in the war with Egypt in 1956, Tabankin wanted to keep it for Jewish development, but Israel gave it back for security guarantees. Everywhere Tabankin looked, he saw unacceptable compromises. But also by then, Yitzhak Tabankin had managed to seed his ideas amongst many elites, including some of Israel's most famous writers, poets, journalists, security officials, military officers, and government ministers. Perhaps none more so than Yigal Alon, former commander of the Palmach, the pre-state elite Jewish militia that had grown out of the socialist kibbutz movement. Yigal Alon was a war hero from 1948 and was now Minister of Labor under Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. He too was a proponent of the whole Land of Israel concept, though less for socialist purposes than for defense. But still this meant common cause with Tabenkin. It was a whole network of idealists who all had their reasons for believing in the whole Land of Israel concept, the maximum territory for Jewish settlement in the historic Jewish homeland. They were just waiting, it seems, for history to provide the opportune moment. And of course, suddenly in 1967, it did. The second that Israel captured all that territory, Yitzhak Tabankin, then 80-year-old, white-bearded inspiration for an entire movement, he was all ready to have his vision completed. Let the politicians dither in their secret meetings about what to do next. Tabankin and his younger followers knew exactly what was needed to take all this new land and settle it. To resurrect the Zionist vision, inject the movement with new momentum. Let the children and grandchildren of the original socialist Zionist settlers also participate in the great project of Jewish renewal in the homeland to give meaning to their lives. And within a few weeks of the end of the war, these new settlers had found their spot. Now let's hold up a second before we start building settlements. This is illegal, right? Article 49 in Section 3 of the Fourth Geneva Convention lays out the various protections for people in occupied territories and the limits on what the occupying power can and cannot do. Quote, individual or mass forcible transfers are prohibited regardless of their motive, end quote. That includes another country or the country doing the occupying. And here's another, quote, The occupying power shall not deport or transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies, end quote. So those are the two biggies. You can't force people out, and you can't move your own people in. But there is an exception. Quote, Nevertheless, the occupying power may undertake total or partial evacuation of a given area if the security of the population or imperative military reasons so demand. Persons thus evacuated shall be transferred back to their homes as soon as hostilities in the area in question have ceased. End quote. So, if there's a military necessity for temporary settlement, that's allowed. But even in that scenario, the native residents cannot be moved outside of that territory, except when it's impossible to avoid that level of displacement. 
So now things get interesting, right? Because Israel has captured five separate territories, all of which it now occupies, but each one is subject to its own particular variables. Let's take the Golan Heights, captured from Syria in the northeastern corner of Israel. The Golan wasn't disputed territory. It definitely belonged to Syria. The Akivot Institute for Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Research quotes a figure of 90,000 Syrians living on the Golan Heights prior to that war. But the Golan was also used as a military platform to attack Israel, which, by the way, is also illegal. Sitting up on a mountain ridge overlooking the Hula Valley of northern Israel, for years Syria rained down a constant barrage of artillery and sniper fire on Israelis in the farming communities of the valley. During the Six-Day War, Israel's commanders were reluctant to take the Golan, fearing a third front in what was already a two-front war. But they were convinced by the impassioned pleas of the IDF general in command there that it was simply intolerable for Israel to allow Syria a platform for endless warfare. So the Golan was captured. From a defensive standpoint, then, it's a no-brainer. Of course you're going to hang on to it. Although we know from last episode that the government had voted to make an offer to return it for a peace treaty. And so herein lies the loophole that, well, you can accept this or not as you see fit, and spoiler alert, the international community technically never has. Remember how I told you that Israel had previously used its settlements as defensive outposts in addition to farming communities. Located along the frontiers, they served both functions. And now we have this exception in the Geneva Conventions for a temporary military purpose. And Syria and Israel were still in a state of war, and by the way, still are today. Syria has never agreed to a peace agreement with Israel, nor recognized any borders. So, through this loophole, we can drive a settlement. Because we're not going to call it a settlement, we're going to call it a military outpost. We're going to park some military jeeps, send up some soldiers, and situate ourselves right along the ceasefire line to defend it from Syrian aggression. It's temporary, of course, as the Geneva Convention allows until hostilities cease, which again, technically they never have. Syria attacked Israel, they lost the territory, Israel needs it for its defense, and by the way, there are a number of significant Jewish historical sites up there. It seems like a great place for Yitzhak Tabankin's whole land of Israel movement followers to stake their first claim. And so they did. The first Israeli settlement in the occupied territories was launched on July 14, 1967, some five weeks after the war ended, and just a stone's throw from what was now the border with Syria. It was called Kibbutz Merom Golan, and was founded by a group of cowboys. Literally. A New York Times article from 1976 relates that the founders signed up with the Ministry of Defense to corral a couple thousand cows that had been scattered by the war. They called themselves the first Jewish cowboys in 2,000 years. And that's how they got access to what was otherwise supposed to be a closed military zone. The community was organized on top of an abandoned Syrian army base, and we're talking around 40 people or so, several families. And remember, this was not coming from the government, but was a grassroots effort. One of the leaders was Yehuda Harel, 33 years old, who thought the settlement imperative for the defense of Israel. 
And he was also a follower of Yitzhak Tabankin and steeped in the socialist kibbutz tradition. He told the New York Times that in a country facing constant attacks and without real borders, quote, the only thing that counts is where Jews settle. That's what has defined the frontiers until now, end quote. As he saw it, Israelis had never willingly given up a settlement before. Therefore, where he and others settle in the Golan Heights, Israel will be forced to defend, providing a buffer for the more populous parts of Israel back behind them. It was an updated version of creating facts on the ground that the Zionist movement had pioneered in the first part of the century. The Israeli journalist Gershom Gornberg quotes Yehuda Harel's idealistic vision of what Kibbutz Mirum Golan was supposed to start. Quote, We dreamed that a new era was beginning, that we would be the first settlement of hundreds, that thousands of young Jews would immigrate from abroad, that everything we'd read in books about the kibbutz movement and the War of Independence, we were doing. End quote. In other words, this wasn't religious in nature. This wasn't about settling on the land that God gave the Jews in the Bible, or seeing settlement as part of some grand vision of Jewish redemption. This was about revitalizing the revolutionary aspects of Zionism that had been the accomplishments of previous generations, the building of the state, the settlement of historic Jewish land. This generation, Yehuda Harel's generation, who had come of age after the War of Independence, had worried that they would miss out on this that their lives would end up being less meaningful, less purposeful. Israel's victory had now created a pathway for Yehuda Harel's generation to also claim the successes of the kibbutz and of independence and of Jewish settlement. Even better that they had done it without direction from the government. Of course, it's good for street cred and all to have a grassroots start, but the wider settlement movement learned right from the beginning that it was crucial to have at least one big backer from the government. In the case of Merom Golan, Yehuda Harel and his co-founders had a biggie, Yigal Alon, fellow kibbutznik, military hero, and currently minister of labor. At the same time as Merom Golan was getting off the ground, Alon was coming up with his own grand plan for what to do with the occupied territories. And this little kibbutz on the border with Syria fit right into it. While the government debated about what to do with all these captured territories, Yigal alone was formulating his own plan. He was faced with his own internal contradiction. He was a leading proponent of the whole Land of Israel effort, aligned with Yitzhak Tabankin and the kibbutz movement for settling the maximum amount of territory. But he was primarily concerned with Israel's defense and saw the captured territory in that light, both in terms of where the border lines should be, but also where the demographic lines were. He thought that Israel would need to annex some of the territories for its defense, such as the Jordan River Valley along the frontier with Jordan. But he wanted to avoid Israel taking permanent control of areas with large Arab populations, since that would create conflict and threaten Israel's Jewish majority. He would drive around the country getting excited about seeing some tract of land to bring into Israel, but then would later soberly draw it outside the new borders he was envisioning. He drew up a plan that would divide the West Bank between Israel and Jordan, basically creating a Palestinian island in the middle of Israel around the major Arab cities, 
with Israel taking the rest as a security frontier with Jordan. The Sinai would be given back to Egypt. Alone wasn't sure what to do with Gaza, at first wanting Israel to take it, but later imagining that it would be some kind of joint Palestinian-Jordanian territory. And as for the Golan Heights, he wanted to create an independent state for the Druze to act as a buffer between Syria and Israel. The Druze are a small religious sect, Arabic-speaking, but neither Islamic nor Jewish, who mostly live in Lebanon, Syria, and the Golan Heights. Still, the whole land of Israel idea tugged at him, as did his allegiance to the kibbutz movement. So when it came to his attention what was happening at Merom Golan, Alon was eager to help. It served his military purpose, too. Although the Israeli cabinet voted to offer the Golan back to Syria in exchange for a peace treaty, there was no telling how long that would take. And in the meantime, Syria was a hostile power. It would be helpful to have settlements along the frontier, where they could be strategically useful. So alone made sure that Merom Golan received funding from the labor ministry for its various activities, under the guise of economic development. And the Israeli government went right along with the fiction that this was a temporary military outpost, not a permanent civilian settlement. So little by little, some money here, a government permit there, a bureaucratic hurdle overcome, a barn for cows put up, little by little, Kibbutz Merom Golan became an established settlement, such that when the Israeli government finally came around to considering whether or not to allow Jewish settlement on the Golan Heights, Merom Golan had created itself as a fact. By August of 1967, Israel accepted Merom Golan as an official settlement and the land around it opened for farming. The historian Tom Segev writes that by January of 1968, there were five settlements in the Golan, comprising some 450 residents. It was remote enough that the settlements struggled to attract people, and many who did come ended up leaving. Those that stayed then, like Yehuda Harel, were the most committed, seeing themselves as a new vanguard for the secular socialist realization of the Jewish potential on new land. Kibbutz Merom Golan is still around. It has about 700 residents today, and Yehuda Harel is still alive. It eventually moved a couple miles back from the border with Syria, and now sits inside the crater of a dormant volcano named Mount Bental which is a popular tourist attraction. At the top of the mountain, you can look down into Syria. I've been many times. The Golan Heights was never given back to Syria since no peace agreement was ever signed. There were probably between 80,000 to 100,000 Syrians there before the war. Nearly all of them fled during the fighting, and Israel did not allow them to return, citing the security risk. The Golan was officially annexed by Israel in 1981, although only one country recognizes it the United States, and then only since 2019. The Golan is a beautiful area, but sparsely populated with only about 50,000 people, half Jews, half Druze. Some of them actually hold dual citizenship in both Syria and Israel, and one village actually straddles the border between Israel and Lebanon, with no border fence between the two halves, just an Israeli army checkpoint on the road leading to the town. The Israeli author Ari Shavit writes, quote, In years to come, historians will try to determine which is the more dominant feature of the endeavor, socialism or nationalism. 
Some will argue that choosing socialism at this critical stage is Zionism's cunning way of conquering the land. Socialism gives this belated colonizing project a sense of justice and an aura of legitimacy. Yet all this idealistic socialism is just subterfuge, future critics will claim. It is the moral camouflage of an aggressive national movement whose purpose is to obscure its colonialist, expansionist nature. End quote. As I said at the beginning, the nature of this complex settlement project lends itself to any narrative, from the most idealistic to the most cynical and anywhere in between. Today we looked at the first settlement, Kibbutz Merom Golan, a secular socialist project located in the northern tip of Israel. Next episode, we'll look at the second of Israel's settlements, this one down below Jerusalem in the West Bank, and a creation of a religious national idealism different than the outlook we considered today. As always, I'm at jewidontknow.com, and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later.